0: Hello again, future minority doctors. Thank you as always for joining us for another one of our episodes. Today we thought it would be good to talk about a topic that affects a lot of us and sometimes can even turn us away from the pursuit of becoming a doctor. We will be discussing how to manage family and cultural expectations. I'm sure some of you are questioned about the decision to become a doctor by your family, friends, and even your community. Well, Dr. Marina and I wanted to address this today because we too faced these common concerns within our communities and cultures as well. Okay, so um, I'd like to start out by talking about the financial cost of medical education. I found that many family and friends often brought up that it would be too expensive and it takes too long to become a doctor. These comments often imposed more self-doubt on a decision to aspire to be something that I already thought was hard. It was just another layer added on the already difficult dream to become a doctor. The thought of too expensive is a common concern for underrepresented minorities because we are more likely to come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds compared to other racial and ethnic backgrounds. For many of our families, they are waiting on us to graduate from high school so we can start bringing income into the household. To be honest, deep down inside, most of us wanna start helping because we see how hard it is financially for our families. The thought about medical debt really turns a lot of people away as well, especially when all your life you've seen your parents live paycheck to paycheck and sometimes unable to make rent. It is true though, it is expensive and you are looking into getting over $150,000 to $200,000 debt. I could definitely relate to this fear when you hear those numbers. I remember when I heard about how much it would be to go to medical school when I was in college and thought about how that money can buy an actual home for my family. We lived in transitional living several times growing up, renting rooms from other families because we couldn't afford to rent an entire apartment. Then when we were living in an apartment, I always saw how my parents struggled to make ends meet. My thought growing up was often thinking that I just needed to start working so that I could start helping, especially my mom. Most lower socioeconomic underrepresented minorities rely on loans, grants, and scholarships to help finance college and medical school because parents are not likely to contribute to funding education. Most parents are often struggling financially, too. And this was my experience. I, too, was on my own to finance everything. What was your experience like, Dr. Marina?
1: Yeah, so I had a little bit of an advantage because I'd seen my mom get frustrated with my family's financial situation. My dad was struggling to support our family. So she decided to go back to school and eventually became a teacher. She started at community college, made her way to a four-year university. And that was happening while I was in sort of late elementary and middle school. Um, So I sort of saw her go through that educational pathway. And she sort of set the example for me that education was something to value. Education was a sacrifice. And, you know, she did have to take out loans to fund her own education. But overall, it was very much worth it. So she set that example for me that education, even though it required sacrifice, financial and time, it was worth it. So I had that example from my mom. Now, when I went to college, I think you know my parents were expected based on the financial aid application, the FAFSA, they were expected to contribute something like one or $2,000 for my first year of college. And they did, but it was a really big stretch for them. And after that, I ended up just taking out extra loans to cover the parent contribution because I know they didn't have extra money to spare. They did help me get, you know, occasional supplies for my dorm room or clothes and stuff like that. But I did have to work a part-time job in college in order to help earn money for all that miscellaneous stuff that I needed. So overall, my schooling was funded by grants, scholarships, and loans.
0: So again, as you can hear from Dr. Marina, very similar experiences that we both have and commonly in minorities as we're trying to pursue an education. And then along the same lines of thinking about money, you think about the length of training. In other words, it takes too long, especially to make money, which in turn leads to the stress of how long it will have to be until you can help your family. Given it takes about 11 to 15 years total to complete everything, to become an actual practicing doctor, many minorities or underrepresented minorities think about how in those 11 to 15 years they could just find a shorter route and start making money quicker or even just skip college altogether and start making money right away. Another concern of taking too long is just simply the getting too old before you can do anything. Dr. Marino, what are your thoughts about how you address that concern or that question about the medical school journey being too long?
1: I definitely thought about this when I was thinking about whether to go to medical school or not. You know, you sort of calculate it. Like, let's say you're 20 you know in college and they're like okay I'm gonna be 24 by the time I graduate from college then it's four years of medical school that's 28 then three years of residency that's 31 so like even if you go straight straight through you're talking about being about 30 years old by the time you finish and for a lot of people they don't go straight through you know maybe they did something else they took a year off they took a gap year or a few gap years Or, you know, they did a master's program or PhD together with an MD. So that puts you at like 35, sometimes 40, depending on your life situation, by the time you are a fully fledged doctor. So that can be intimidating. And I remember thinking I would be about 30 if I went straight through. And um, it was like, oh, man, that's a whole decade of my life. But what I like to tell students is, okay, you're worried that you're going to be 35 by the time you become a doctor. Well, you're going to become 35 at some point anyway. So why not be 35 years old and have a career that is fulfilling, that is well-paying, where you get to help people versus being 35 and not having those things? So why not?
0: Definitely agree. I was 33 when I finished everything, when I finished residency. so, But yeah, it's a common question, so we thought it'd be good to address it. So while in this part, it is is true, let us break down the benefit of why it would be worth the cost and the worth of the delayed gratification or waiting several years to reap the benefits. And most importantly, the sacrifice of your family having to wait too. Remember, you do start getting paid during residency. So essentially, you're not getting paid for eight years. That's college and medical school. Throughout college, as Dr. Marina mentioned, you can work a part-time job. But usually, these are a few hours a week because you're trying to prioritize school. This money usually goes towards helping you pay your basic living costs. I want to bring up some different scenarios, though. Okay, so we're going to start with, say, option A or scenario one. Say you start working right after high school and you say forget college altogether. So your average salary right now, if you start at minimum at a minimum wage job and start working right after high school, is about $31,000 a year or about $2,600 a month that you would get paid before taxes. If you chose to go to medical school, you're probably thinking about how over eight years you have lost out on two hundred forty-eight thousand dollars. So that sounds like a lot, obviously, and it is a lot of money. That's thirty-one thousand dollars per year for eight years. Okay, so now let's look at a different option. Say option B. Say you decide um, that you do go to college and then, but forget medical school. You're just going to start working after college. So the average salary is about fifty dollars to $60,000 a year or $4,000 a month before taxes. This can be below or above average depending on what field you go into, but this is a pretty good average to start. So definitely better than not going to college at all. Now if you were to decide to, to go to medical school, you're thinking about four more years before you start making any money. Now you're thinking how you could lose out on those four years worth of post-college money, which ends up being about $200,000 over those four years, which again is a big chunk of money. So now let's do option C. Say Say you decide to go to medical school and wait out those eight years before you see any money. After completing your first years of college and medical school, you will go into residency and you do start getting paid. Residency pays you roughly about what post a post-college job would pay you, which is about $50,000 a year, and each year it goes up by a little bit. So you will be getting paid during those years of residency, which are about three to six years long, depending on your specialty. Now, after you finish residency is where your real salary starts. So depending on your specialty in medicine, your salary will be anywhere from, say, $230,000 a year or $19,000 a month. That would be somewhere about primary care doctor to $500,000 a year or $41,000 a month for an orthopedic surgeon, for example, or anywhere in between those numbers, assuming you work full time. So then think about this. In one year after you finish residency, you will make what you had made over eight years if you worked straight after high school or four years after college. In other words, your doctor's salary is one in one year is the same or more than eight years worth of work without a college degree. Your doctor's salary in one year is more than four years of work with a college degree. Again, the money alone shouldn't be a driving factor why you become a doctor. It truly should be a passion that comes from your heart. The journey getting there is hard work, so you will be miserable along the way if the only reason to be a doctor is for the money. But if in your heart you want to be a doctor, then this is why the too expensive and too long may be worth the wait and the sacrifice. Now there is debt involved in that equation as well, so thinking about how to best finance along the way will be important. However, coming from a family with no money should not deter you from attaining this dream of yours. You will be able to eventually pay off your debt because you are a high income earner and there are programs to help you pay your debt down. Dr. Marino, what are your thoughts about the medical journey being worth the wait?
1: Well, if I'm totally honest, there have been a couple of moments when I looked back and thought, was this really worth it? But every time I look at the big picture of how I've grown as a person and as a doctor, how I get to help people through my work every day, and how I'm able to have a pretty comfortable life now, I absolutely think it was worth it. The reason why sometimes I look back and, and think about it is there are some frustrating days in medicine. There are things that you can't control about the way the medical system works, you know, some physicians face burnout. But overall, when I look at the big picture, it has absolutely been worth it. So thinking a little about the numbers, like you were mentioning, medical school was where I had to take out most of my loans. Since I ended up taking an extra year for medical school, and then I did a master's degree, um, and I had to take out loans for all of that, I ended up with about $240,000 in loans overall. And honestly, while I was going through the process, I tried not to think about it too much because there really wasn't another way for me to do it. My family didn't have any money to contribute. Scholarships are limited and it's time consuming to try to get them. So I did what I needed to do at the time. And luckily, once I finished my training, I ended up working at a community health center in California. And I was able to apply for a loan repayment program through the state of California which helped pay off a large chunk of those loans. And of course, if I now if I continue paying off those loans, I'll probably be done paying them off in a couple of years. So that will be about 10 years after finishing residency, I will have finished paying off my loans. You know, both of us are examples of people who did not have any contributions from our families to fall back on, and we still managed to do it. So if we can do it, you can do it too.
0: Yeah, I, re- I recall too, sometimes... Where I needed just not a, a large amount of money, but a little bit of money to get me by. And I actually, I would, luckily I had some friends that would even let me borrow money and then little by little I would pay them off. So, I mean, if you mm-hmm. find yourself stuck in that situation and you have friends or family members that can just kind of put money together, don't feel embarrassed to ask because you can pay them, just pay them back. <laughs> just be able to pay them back. But uh huh, it's true. Just because it's a common concern about some, like, for example, um, I remember when I finished medical school, I needed money to be able to move to the new residency city that I was going to. So I was going from San Diego to Los Angeles, and I had no money for it. So again, at that point, there's something called a relocation loan. So on top of everything that I already owned, I had to go and asked for this little loan. And then I had some friends that were already established, and they let let me borrow some money too. And we just worked it out where I was able to pay back little by little. So you you have to get creative sometimes in trying to find how to finance things when you don't really have that financial support from your parents because they can't.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, relocating is expensive because, you, you know, every time you rent a new apartment, you have to put down a security deposit. You have to, you know, rent a truck to move your stuff like that stuff adds up. I had the privilege of having my husband's family to fall back on by that time. Um, so they actually helped us with some of those relocation expenses. And I'm really, really grateful for that. But, yeah, absolutely. If I didn't have that,
0: I would have had to do
1: exactly what you did.
0: All right, so um, another common cultural concern in thinking about being a doctor is it's just too much work, or our people aren't doctors because you can't be what you can't see, right? I know I didn't see any minority doctors growing up. Shoot, I didn't even go to the doctor because I didn't have medical insurance. Doctors were definitely not part of my community and not something I identified with. It is really hard to visualize yourself being a doctor if you do not see doctors that look like you. So firstly, I want to address the common response we get in our community about it's too much work. I think these feelings are often related to the lack of academic preparation that we see in our communities. Underrepresented minorities are not as well prepared for the sciences. Firstly, in low socioeconomic communities, from kinder to 12th grade all the way to high school, we have poorer academic resources. In high school, there may be a lack of guidance in taking the university requirements in high school to prepare you. If you go through the JC community college route, there is often a lack of guidance ensuring you are taking the correct pre-med courses and classes to better prepare you once you transition to a competitive four-year university. This then leads to college underrepresented minorities having lower grades in sciences due to this lack of lifelong preparation. Then adding to it more is the poor advising we get from our own community resources. Since there is limited access to medical professionals in our communities, Underrepresented minor- minorities rely heavily on what those around us tell us, like a counselor, a family member, a religious member, or friends. For example, if you get a bad grade in a pre-med or science or math course, we believe it if our school counselor our family member religious member discourages us. We get a negative reassurance that since we did bad in a science or math class, there's no way we can ever become doctors. And this is so not true. So as you can see, all of these things contribute to these beliefs about why it is uncommon for minorities to be doctors in our communities, and the thought that it is just too hard. Now, in addressing you-can't-be-what-you-can't-see, the identification of a minority being able to identify oneself as a doctor is largely impacted by the lack of representation or limited exposure. Guys, The reality is that any underrepresented minority can be a doctor, but it is hard to see it because we just don't see it. I challenge all of you to start surrounding yourself with images of real people who are underrepresented minority doctors. You have the advantage of the internet. Search for doctor groups that belong to cultures that you relate with. Look up on TikTok all the underrepresented minority doctors that post videos. Read books about journeys of minority doctors. Increase your podcast library to hear about doctors with the culture you identify with. The more you look and listen, the more you will see yourself as a doctor in the future. If all of you listening today do become doctors, we will start reflecting our community, ethnic, social, and cultural makeup in the medical world. And another big contributor to these beliefs in our community surrounds the topic of stereotype threat. Please take a listen to our episode on stereotype threat. Stereotype threat plays a big role in our academic performance and thoughts that make us think that underrepresented minorities are not supposed to be doctors. It is so important that we dedicated an entire episode to it, so please take a listen. Dr. Marina, did you have any experiences in high school or college in which someone in your community discouraged you?
1: Yeah, I was pretty lucky that I didn't face too much discouragement along the way. Either that or maybe I was just really good at ignoring it or maybe I was just kind of oblivious. I don't really know, but I don't remember too much discouragement. However, becoming a doctor was not what anyone expected of me. Um, you know, I think my mom encouraged me to go to college, but she did not expect me to become like a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that. It was more like, okay you I'll just get a decent job after college, uh, maybe be a teacher like I was. So when I did mention once I was in college. When I did mention the possibility of becoming a doctor, that that was my plan to people in my community, sometimes I would get weird looks kind of as if they were thinking, you think you can be a doctor or who do you think you are? Do you think you're better than us? So it was kind of this, these like unspoken sentiments, which is kind of weird because you don't expect discouragement or doubt from your own family and your own community, but that's sometimes where it comes from. I think my parents were a little bit skeptical at times (laughs) about whether I would actually go through with it, but luckily they sort of kept that skepticism to themselves because I think they knew me well enough. They knew that I was pretty strong-willed, and in the end, I was going to do whatever I wanted to do.
0: Yeah. You know, like, I would get that same reaction, I think, when I was in college from even peers, Uh but in high school... Um, And I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, but when a teacher recommended I go from the regular courses to honors or AP courses in high school, my high school counselor actually discouraged me from doing it because he said it was too hard and I was likely to fail. So I still, and this was my high school counselor, so I, I still went with it just because I trusted my English teacher who told me that I should switch to it but at that moment i really felt that self doubt so and i remember even in in college when i would fail classes my high school counselor would pop into my mind because i thought maybe oh maybe i'm not supposed to be here i'm not doing good i'm not smart enough but yeah so some some of you that are listening you might have those people in your life that do and and be good at it like dr marina maybe she just ignored it be good at it and just pay no attention <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And you know, lots of times those people like that high school counselor, he probably just didn't know you very well. I think your English teacher was the one that actually saw your work, saw your dedication from day to day, and she had a better idea of what you were actually capable of. So if you're hearing these discouraging messages from people that don't even know you very well,
0: have never seen
1: what you're capable of or your work, then they have no right to have an opinion, (laughs) honestly. So try to set it aside as much as you can.
0: Yes, I've learned the motto, consider the source. Yes, very, very good. Very good advice. All right. So another cultural obstacle we face is a feeling of loss of identity or sense of self. So growing up in a low socioeconomic community and a very diverse community, I grew up around a lot of other Latinos, Samoans, Blacks, and I even had friends that were Asian and white, but they also came from low socioeconomic backgrounds. I was at one point called a sellout simply because I was doing well academically, believe it or not. And this was by a family member too. So for some reason, being academically successful is thought by some people or some even family members like myself to be seen as you think you're too good mentality or trying to be too white. I never thought that way though. In my mind, all I thought I was just being myself and getting good grades and I wasn't changing who I was. My father actually once told my mom when I went off to college that his fear was that after I graduated college, he thought I was going to think I was way above them, above my own parents. And this is my father who became angry after finding out I would be moving out to go to college. He did not talk to me for a whole week and didn't even say goodbye when I moved out. And guys, I was just going to college. I wasn't doing anything bad yet. I was being treated like I was disrespecting my family by going away. And I hear this story uh, very commonly as well with my patients, with my teenage patients too.
1: Yes, I had the same experience, you know, going off to college. My parents never said anything bad. I mean, I think they were really proud of me on some level but they kind of teased me sometimes when I would come back home, my brothers, especially (laughs) just like, oh, you know, you're like a Stanford student now, you know, or what you mentioned about people thinking that you're becoming too white. I definitely felt that too. And it's really hard because you're trying to straddle two worlds. Like, On the one hand, you're trying to be the person that you grew up as, you know, you love your home culture, your food, your music, all of the stuff about your home, you still love and that's part of your identity. But when you go away to college, you're also trying to fit into a very, how should I say, a very white world, a very middle class, upper class world. And so you have to learn how to fit in. And yeah, maybe we do sort of become quote unquote white <laughs> in that process of trying to fit into that different world. But, you know, we still are who we are. But I definitely felt that the straddling two worlds, the conflict of identity of like at home, I'm sort of one person who I really am, but I also have aspirations <laughs> and in college I'm trying to fit in. So it can be really hard to, to you know, make sense of your identity when you're doing that.
0: Yeah, uh, when I was in college, the student makeup was definitely not reflective of what my world was like back home, as I know for you, it was the same Dr. Marina. And I really felt that intensity to hold on to my community. I fought having to dress differently, I recall, because now I was surrounded by people who look different. And I thought, no, I'm still going to be me. Mm -hmm. I rebelled doing my hair differently because I was supposed to present myself in a different way. I really thought that if I did anything different, I was leaving my culture or myself behind. I remember having a friend in college who grew up in a community where many of his friends were selling drugs and he had become involved with it at one point. He had managed to get out of it and he went to college, which was great. And in our first year in college, he struggled with leaving that part of him behind. I remember him telling me that he felt like he was leaving his homies or his friends behind by moving up. And I mean, this guy was so smart too, understanding the sense of feeling that going to college felt like we were neglecting important people in our lives. I often told him that we were actually raising our community by getting an education and we would be able to go back and give back later on. He unfortunately, though, succumbed to his past lifestyle and he ended up dropping out of college our second year and I never heard back from him again. And, you know, I always wondered what happened to him. I mean, he was so smart in school. But, you know, the struggle of self-identity when we're trying to pursue a career, it, it is real. And the higher you accomplish, it, you can feel it more. And then in medical school, I also always felt nervous in a setting with professionals. Even though I was in medical school, I never saw myself like a professional. I knew I didn't sound like them when I talked. While I wanted to sound differently, I didn't want to let go of who I always had been. I wanted to be me around anyone, but always had this fear that I couldn't. However, in the small group of close medical school friends who are also underrepresented minorities, or some of them were not underrepresented minorities, but they came from low socioeconomic backgrounds, that was kind of our place where we can talk and be who we really were. We didn't have to hide our backstory growing up, our slang, our music, or our language. Well, I'm here to tell you, though, that although you may experience these things and while you move up the economic ladder, who you are will always be there. I still speak Spanish every day. I still love going to Mexico to see my family. I still dance and listen to hip-hop, R&B, Banda, mariachi, cumbia, salsa, merengue. I even still listen to oldies because we grew up listening to oldies. Uh-huh. And I still hang out with my cousins, except during COVID, of course. But all my cousins who are all tatted up, that some of them have gone to jail for whatever it might have been, or they're recovering from alcoholism and drugs. I still see them and I still hang out with them. And I've never changed how I see or love my family. I grew up with regardless of their situation, because they're part of what makes me I still eat beans, everybody. And I <laughs> <laughs> And too. when I meet up with my childhood friends, we bring on our old school hip hop, and we talk about the good old days. So moving up, I think is really important to it's not about losing yourself, although it does feel that way sometimes, but it's really about improving yourself for your community and being a voice for all of them. Dr. Marina, did you ever experience any identity issues throughout your professional journey?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like I mentioned, you know, it's, it's those conflicting desires. You want to still be part of your home community and be um, the person you grew up to be. Um, but at the same time, you want to really learn to fit in into your new community in college or in medical school. And like you said, the higher up you go, the harder it becomes because you tend to get an even more sort of privileged segment of society as you go up that ladder. And so the difference between where you came from and where you're going can feel very large at some points in the journey. And, you know, looking back, my brothers teased me, you know, some of that was legitimate. Like I was changing. The way that I was speaking was changing. Mm -hmm. The vocabulary I used was changing. The things that I liked or preferred, the kind of food that I started eating was different because I started you know, going out and exploring different types of cuisines, because that's what was available around the college where I went to. And, you know, they noticed that difference. That's normal. They teased me about it sometimes. Luckily, with my family, it helps that a lot of my siblings were also going through the process of going to college and expanding their exposure to society and to different types of people, different types of food, different types of speaking and all of that stuff. So, you know, they themselves went through a similar experience in their own way, but still, you know, some of my cousins and other family members and other people that I knew in my neighborhood growing up, they just were who they were. And so it was hard. And I think lots of us who grow up in a low socioeconomic setting and kind of move our way up in the world, we do what's called code switching. So when I was with my family and my cousins at a big family gathering or something, I adopted a certain way of speaking, a certain way of being, I would not talk about certain topics, and <laughs> I would stick to certain topics that I knew were interesting to all of us together. Whereas if, you know, if I was at a party at Stanford, or in medical school, I guess it was very different. The type of words I would use were different. <laughs> the types of things I would talk about were different. The way I carried myself was different. So we do this thing called code switching, where because we have to learn to fit into these. Multiple environments, we learn how to change ourselves and our way of being according to the environment we're in.
0: Yeah. And I think this code switching is a valuable tool when you become a doctor. And I think that's what can set you apart um, from other doctors because we, at least for me, but I think most of us use code switching with our patients. Yeah. So as soon as we walk into that exam room, and this is if you work. With patients that are from underrepresented backgrounds or low socioeconomic, I code switch to their level because I'm familiar with it. Definitely. And it allows this profound connection with the kids and the families where I often get where they forget I'm their doctor and they start, I can feel them talking to me like they're family and words come out that are not supposed to and they're like, they stop themselves and they say, oops, I wasn't supposed to say that word. Sorry, I forgot I was talking to you. But again, this is where this code switching is beneficial and why diversifying is so important because we're better able to help the patients to take care of themselves. So uh, just to bring up that point that I think it's a it's a good skill that we are able to have to be better doctors.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it is really valuable for sure with you know dealing with patients from different backgrounds we're sort of able to adjust, you know, just manners and way of speaking to make them comfortable. Um, I do see a lot of doctors that struggle, you know, when they're talking to someone with a lower educational level, they start to use all of these like words that I know they, the patient does not understand. <laughs> and so being aware of those differences could be really helpful so that we can improve our communication with our patients.
0: Definitely. The next point I want, I would like to bring up is a huge one for many, and it still exists today for myself. The idea and the process of evolving into a position of becoming a high-income earner and moving out of the low socioeconomic bracket can be stressful. Some may think, how in the world can you become more stressed when you make more money and now can make ends meet? Or even how in the world can you feel stressed as a title of being called a college student or medical student or even a doctor?" Well, it can when your identification for many years was with a low socioeconomic community and when your identity is ingrained in your family culture and this community. So there is a sense of guilt that can come with the decision to go to college. Some contributing factors can be you feel obligated to help your family financially. You play a key role in helping your parents navigate through the American system. And this is true for many students from immigrant families. Up until high school, you've been the interpreter for everything. You fill out all their paperwork, you go with with your parents to all of their medical appointments, you call credit card companies, electricity companies, or whatever issues that your parents may have. You are that point of contact. You may even manage writing checks for them or using ATM machines for them because they don't know how to do it. You may be the babysitter of the family because you help while mom or dad works. Your parents cannot afford to pay a babysitter for your younger siblings. You are the one to help your younger siblings behave well and put them in check as well so they don't get into trouble. You are the one to help your younger siblings with their homework because your parents don't know how to do it. And you are there to basically just protect the family among the community and sometimes your neighborhood if you live in a dangerous neighborhood. Or you may be the protector of the family. And this is especially true for those of you who have drug or alcohol dependent parents. At least that's what I felt my role was um, in my family. So when you consider all of this, the decision to go away for college becomes really hard. All of your life, it was taught to you that family always comes first, right? The feeling like you are letting your family down and the feeling of guilt of putting yourself first is real. You feel guilty that you are leaving the people you love most behind. Then as you continue to succeed throughout college and you don't see your family, your friends, your community moving up with you, There's this big sense of guilt for being successful as well. This part was really hard for me, and sometimes it still creeps up with me. Everything I mentioned earlier regarding possible roles that you can play in your family, I did all of those for my parents and my family. My mom wanted me to stay locally to go to college, but I knew that it would be too hard for me to focus on school being immersed in all the family drama. I knew my parents wouldn't understand how in the world that I could study five or more hours and not get paid. That concept did not make sense to them. My mom literally told me that I was abandoning her when I left to college, which was very hurtful. Yeah. We always had a great relationship, but she just heavily relied on me to do all these things and she felt at a loss. And the other thing was, since my father was recovering from alcoholism at that time, you know, she felt like I played this key role in having him stop drinking, but I had to reassure her that if my dad started drinking again, that we would find a way for, the, for her or my sister to come and move with me in college. And then during my first and second year in college, my little sister actually started drifting off and was getting into some trouble. My parents would sometimes mention that if I wouldn't have left, perhaps she would have made better decisions. And you know what? I felt partly like it was my fault that she was making some wrong decisions. The reality is, though, if you step back, is that my sister could have made all those wrong decisions even if I was there. So as you can see, being successful for underrepresented minorities or students from low socioeconomic backgrounds comes with hard decisions and could lead, actually one to make the decision of not pursuing a career because it's just easier to continue to deal with all your family obligations. I still today get that sense of guilt when my family is struggling financially. There's this balance you have to maintain in which you help enough but not too much financially because you can actually be seen as an ATM machine. Uh-huh. Family and friends can abuse that access to you. Learning to set boundaries when that really has not been part of your culture because in the Mexican culture like boundaries do not exist. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's it's hard. However, today when I step back and I reflect on everything I sacrificed for myself and my family, we are all collectively in a better position. My mom became more empowered when I left, and she actually now does everything on her own. She's not as scared anymore. My siblings, they've established themselves well, and they have very loving children, and their children are striving to be successful too. My high school niece actually wants to be a surgeon. Why? Because she has an aunt who's a doctor. She can see it. My large extended family now actually includes college graduates. So your family and community will now be able to be what they can see. And that's because of you. Your family, friends, and community is watching you in silence. we don't realize it, but they are silently watching. The hope is that they'll follow suit, and then the evolution of the entire family moving upwards will become a real thing. Dr. Marino, what obstacles have you faced within your family or community when you went up the socioeconomic or educational ladder?
1: You know, I don't think I faced quite as many challenges as, as you did. I really admire you for, you know, having that courage to step away from your family, even though you knew that there was that guilt and that your family even said things to you that, you know, reinforced that guilt, because that's a really, really hard thing to do. Um, in my family, my oldest two brothers were still living at home and going to college from home. So I didn't feel that sense of abandonment. It was more maybe of an emotional abandonment that my mom gave me some guilt for. That it was like, you're my only daughter. You know, we have a special connection. How can you leave me? Uh, but she, because she had gone to college, she did really understand the importance of that. And she was proud. So I didn't face that, that much <laughs> of guilt for leaving home. But, you know, there was that still that feeling of feeling different, like I mentioned, of trying to figure out where you belong. Do I really belong, you know, in my home community? And now that I'm changing through the process of going away to college and going to medical school, um, I did miss a lot of family events. So there were birthday parties and weddings and you know baby showers and all that stuff, graduations that I just couldn't go to. I remember my dad eventually went back to college and uh, followed my mom's path of becoming a teacher. And I missed, I think I ended up missing, I I don't know if it was his graduation. I think I missed his graduation, because I was in medical school at the time, and I just couldn't do it. And I felt really guilty about that. But I was able to show that I was proud of him in other ways. Um, So yeah, there was a lot of missing those family events, uh, missing just spending time with people. You know, when I was across the country, I couldn't come home for Thanksgiving. I couldn't come home for Christmas. Things like that um, were hard. But luckily, like I mentioned, a lot of my family members themselves were going to college, and they were more understanding. But it's still hard. You do sacrifice things. And that change in
0: identity is definitely a challenge. And it's uncomfortable. And but it's a I, I, when you step back, it's a good uncomfortable yeah, <laughs> for yourself and for your yeah. family
1: and overall like overall, like you said, it's worth it because I look back and like I helped to lift my whole family and you know it's been a privilege to be able to help family members when they need a little extra help mm-hmm. you know I you do like you said you have to set boundaries you don't want to be seen as an ATM but once in a while you know when you are able and willing to help, it's a privilege to be able to
0: do that. Yeah. And it's also a privilege since you are knowledgeable of the medical world Uh that if a family member has a medical issue or ends up in the hospital, Oh yeah. You're that point of contact. I feel like that's where, again, bringing up healthcare disparities where you're Uh able to move that aside. And like one of my aunts and getting her diagnosed with cancer I played a a huge role in that, even just from home, making calls, sending letters. And I would just say to my cousins, you show this note to the doctor and you make sure this gets done and so forth. So that's aside from the financial part, the medical part that you can really help your family to make sure they're being treated and managed the way they're supposed to. I mean, that's that one is priceless.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. I have, you know, some of my, some of my family members text me or call me sometimes with like medical questions. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. And it's not like stepping over any boundaries of like, Oh, can you prescribe me this or whatever? (laughs) It's not that, but it's just asking advice. It's like, Hey, should I go see the doctor about this? What can I do? What does this mean? And I love being able to help because you know, it is hard to access doctors. Sometimes not all of my family has insurance. And so, um, you know, it's it's a privilege also just to have that information at your disposal, that understanding, to be able to help people that way as well.
0: Yeah. Lastly, I want to bring up perceived gender expectations in our cultures and community. This is a big one, especially if you're a girl, but there are also cultural male expectations as well. So um, some of the things that come to mind are men were born to work. Don't waste your time going to college. Boys should work right after high school to start helping bring money into the home and giving it to your parents. And then start saving up money because you need to be prepared for when you get married and start having a family because you're supposed to start that right away after you graduate from high school. So those are some of the male expectations that I think I have seen or have been mentioned to me before. As for girls, there's a little bit more. And these expectations for women or for females, they cut across many cultures, including the American culture. However, in some ethnic and religious cultures, they carry a lot more weight. So I wanted to talk about some of these female expectations. So I'll start out with the responsibility to your family, whether it's assisting your parents or you're acting as caretakers for your siblings or for a sick family member. My mom, prior to being married, she was actually required to work and give her entire paycheck to her dad. She never saw a dime from all the money that she worked. And I feel while I haven't seen this as much happen, but I think it still does happen in some cultures. Even today, I think it still happens or you're expected to give part of your money to go to the costs of the family. Another one is being a doctor takes too long, so you'll get too old to have children. Oh, yeah. So as a girl in my culture, you're expected to get married and have children by your early 20s, if not earlier. My grandma actually once told me, I think I was around 20 years old, that I was on my way to becoming an old maid because I had not married or had children. And Uh I mean, and 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 my family, there was also rumors in my family that they said maybe she doesn't like men and she just prefers women. And that's why she's not. Oh, my gosh. This is my family. okay. (laughs) Uh, So, Yeah. yeah, just to share with you kind of the things I grew up with in my 20s. Well, while most doctors don't have children in their 20s, obviously, most of them do have children in their 30s. And it just works out fine. So if I can tell you guys anything is don't let your family place an age when you can become a parent. (laughs) And I think this goes for men too, as well, they might be pressured to hurry up and get married and have kids too at a young age. Uh There's also the stigma in society for women who choose to not want to have children now, imagine if you're a girl and you didn't want to have children or even get married. I have friends like that. Uh, there's a lot of pressure that can come from, from the people that you most love. Dr. Marina, I know you and your husband made the decision of not having children because that was what was best for your family. What pressures have you both faced from a cultural and religious standpoint?
1: Yeah, good question. So, um, well, I grew up in a pretty traditional Christian religious household, and i You know, a lot of the teachings about what my role was as a woman in this world came from that. It was also cultural, though, because my mom, you know, she loved being a mother. She loved having kids. She wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, and it was really only economic necessity that pushed her to go to college and become a teacher, which she loved too, but she always loved being a mom. And you know, she always wanted grandchildren, of course. <laughs> and so I was the first one of all of my siblings to get married because I got married pretty young. And so, you know, telling my parents, um, "I'm not going to have kids for quite a while," <laughs> that was a little bit difficult. <laughs> and um, I know my mom thought, "Okay, when am I going to get a grandkid? When am I going to get a grandkid?" You know that kind of thing. But luckily, she <laughs> she didn't say it out loud to me very often. But definitely, you know, from my religious background. I was definitely taught that, you know, men's role is to be the breadwinner, to earn a living for the family, to have a job. And women's role is really to be a mother. I was taught that really the ideal situation in a family is if a woman could stay home and focus all of her energy on raising children. Now, I, you know, that's sort of the ideal, but of course, a lot of women that I knew growing up they worked. They worked out of economic necessity. And some of them worked and were really passionate about their jobs too. But the ideal that was held up was really if you have the ability, you should stay home and raise kids. Now, I, when I was a teenager, I was pretty much able to kind of shrug off those lessons because I was like, well, I'm not mm-hmm. going to get married till I'm in my 30s anyway. So I don't really have to worry about that stuff because if you're not married, well, it's not even an issue, right? (laughs) So (laughs) Then when I met my husband in college, it was a surprise that we fell in love. We got along really well and we decided to get married pretty young. All of a sudden I had to face those issues that I had ignored as a teenager. And all of a sudden those lessons from church came back to me. And there was this very real pressure that I felt to choose between a family and a career. So luckily, my husband was very supportive of my goal to become a doctor. And, you know, we thought about it for a long time. We thought about all the different possibilities. We thought about the financial aspects. We thought about just, you know, what our different interests and personalities were. And ultimately, we decided we would go forward with our education. I mean, he definitely would. He always wanted to. (laughs) But we would go forward with my education as well. And we would put off having a family as long as was necessary. So the first few years we were married, we definitely did get people, you know, family and people at church asking us, oh, when are you going to have kids? I can only imagine. Yeah, oh, my God. I, know, right? <laughs> I think anybody who is a newly married person gets that question. And luckily, I was sort of a strong enough personality that I would politely tell them basically it's none of their business. <laughs> So, um, you know, and that will shut people up pretty quickly if you tell them, (laughs) but you can do it in a politer way. You don't have to, you know, be rude about it. Many years go by, of course, medical school, residency, all of that. By the time we finished all of our school and our training, and we were finally in a place when we had the money or where we had the money to devote to being parents, we realized that we had actually been really happy without kids for, by that time, over 10 years. You know, realistically, as a pediatrician, I got to see the challenges of being a parent every day. I got to see parents bringing their kids in and being honest and open about, you know, this is what we're facing. This is hard. (laughs) I'm not getting any sleep. I worry about my kids. My kids are developing these issues, all of that stuff. So because I got to see how challenging it could be to be a parent, it really made me think twice of, hey, you know, like, we're really happy by ourselves. Do we really need to have children? to feel fulfilled. And ultimately, we decided that we didn't need children to be happy or to be fulfilled in life. There were many other things in life that could bring us joy and fulfillment. Now, that doesn't mean I don't enjoy being a pediatrician. I still really love kids. I think it's really fun to work with them. I love seeing them from the time they're newborn to learning to walk, meeting all of their developmental milestones, learning to talk. Like It's really fascinating. And if I were a parent, I'm sure I would be a pretty good parent and we would figure it out. But, you know, just at this point in our lives, we decided that children is not the right decision. And at some point that might change. We can still change our minds. We might decide to foster. We might decide to adopt kids. But so far, it just hasn't felt right for us. But, you know, thinking about the family and cultural expectations, you know, I know there are people in my family and friends at church and friends in our community that do not agree with our decision. Um, It's been very hard for my mother-in-law to accept that we're not having children because my husband is an only child. And so it's sort of like, well, the line ends with you. How could you do that to me? So that's challenging. But ultimately, you know, your reproductive choices are your own. Nobody else gets to dictate that for you. Your parents decided for themselves whether to have children, how many children to have all of that, and they don't get to make the decision for you. It's a very personal decision. Everybody's going to come to a different conclusion about it. Don't let anybody else decide that for you. It is your decision and your partner's decision to make. And if people get nosy about it, don't be afraid to set boundaries. Trust me, if you kindly but firmly tell them, I prefer not to talk about that, or more bluntly, it's none of your business. <laughs> Every time they ask, <laughs> they will leave you alone after
0: a while. So just just remember... Just speak up for yourself. And Dr. Marina, she's not the only one. There's, I have many friends, and even outside of being doctors or in other professions, that they decide just not having children is right for their family, and that's okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I like that it's none of your business because that really stops anyone from asking <laughs> oh, anything yes. further. It or... It's pretty effective. <laughs> but I'm more of a blunt person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Another common uh, thing that I think girls get are you can't be a doctor and a mom too. And this is just not true. I have two kids and I do all the normal things that moms do. I play with them, do homework. I go to their school presentations. I bake with them. I'm in no different way from what my mom was like, you know. But while I'm not a stay-at-home mom, think about it. This is a decision you make when you go to college. You're going to college because... You want to have a career, right? We're not going to college because we want to be stay-at-home parents. Although I will say it's okay to change along the way. I do have friends that do go to college, they're working, and then they decide, I want to be a stay-at-home mom. So just remember, any decision you make is not fixed. It can evolve, but you do what's best for you and your partner everybody else just they need to just mind their own business
1: definitely
0: and I will tell you there's a lot of doctor moms okay so just if anybody tells you that parents grandparents that you can't be a doctor mom that's bs <laughs> I agreed another one I, I would hear is that no man will want to marry a woman more educated than him well maybe that's not a good man to marry <laughs> I definitely uh, I, a lot of Female doctors are not married to male doctors. There are some, but a lot of them are not. So I think that is just something to scare a single woman away from pursuing a career or medical profession. Mm -hmm, Definitely. (laughs) Another one that other doctors have shared with me, female doctors, that they were told that girls should be nurses if they plan to do anything in the medical field. And I think this role of a nurse has been just historically seen as a girl job. So by the mere fact that you are a girl and interested in the medical field, it kind of just automatically they want to place you in that category. If you want to be a nurse, great, go for it, okay? But I I don't want you to think that you're limiting yourself of becoming a doctor just because you're a girl. On the flip side, I think male nurses also get a lot of societal pressure because boys aren't supposed to be nurses and no men can be nurses as well. I actually have a friend and she's a doctor and her husband's the nurse. And they work out great. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. Another one that we alluded to earlier was that girls don't move out of their house until they're married. I feel that this is often seen as an American practice where you leave to sow your wild oats. That's what I often was told when I was gonna. I told family that I was going to move away to college. They thought I was just going to want to leave to go and be crazy.
1: Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> so this is, I think, a more of a common thought when you come from a different culture. But the reality is it's just part of the educational journey. I feel that moving out is good for you to grow when you go to college, and and if you're considering it, uh, I would say do it. I think of it almost like when a child starts kindergarten. So this is the first time that the child leaves the home, but it's an it's a natural part of the educational journey, right? So. I think it comes down to educating our family and parents that moving out to go to college is equally part of the educational journey, just like when a child leaves the home to go to kindergarten. And for those of you that have stubborn parents like me, You may have to leave while a parent is not very happy with the decision. However, what I can say at least um, from my personal experience is the day I graduated college was the happiest day for both of my parents and even the one who gave me the silent treatment. My dad, I think, was telling everybody that just crossed this path that his daughter had graduated from college yet. This was the man who gave me the silent
1: treatment when I left. Oh, so. that, that's touching though.
0: Yeah. I was actually, when I graduated for some reason, I don't recall exactly why, but I came out in the local newspaper I ended up coming across one day when I was looking through some paperwork for my dad, and he actually cut out the clipping until today. He still has it. So So it's just, again, it's an evolution of our parents learning. Yeah. So Dr. Marina, given you grew up in a religious community, aside from being a Latina, which already has gender expectations, what kind of obstacles and pressures did you encounter?
1: I did mention some of them already, you know, just this expectation that Mm -hmm. women's role was really to be a mom and have lots of kids and, you know, be a stay-at-home mom, ideally. But um, honestly, I think one of the reasons I got married young was because of religious expectations. I think it would not have been okay with my parents or my husband's parents if we had chosen to live together before we were married, partly because of our culture, but also largely because of those religious beliefs. So even though we were very much in love and committed to each other, there was definitely that pressure to get married before we had sex or started living together. So I'm really not sure what our parents would have done if we had rebelled and just decided to live together for a while before we got married. But I'm sure they would have been pretty upset. I mean, there are families that disown their kids for doing stuff like that. So, you know, it's not something to be taken lightly. But that mm-hmm. topic is complicated by itself. Could be its own episode. I won't go too, too much into that. <laughs> but luckily, you know, our marriage has worked out. We're still together and committed 18 years later. But sometimes I do look back and I think, wow, we were crazy to get married that young. <laughs> So many things could have easily gone wrong like they do in so many marriages. Yeah, there were definitely both those like religious gender expectations and also those religious expectations that had a large influence on my relationship with my husband and just really caused me to go through a lot of grief when I was in college about, oh my gosh, like now I'm married. Do I really want to go forward with this career? I spent I seriously like a whole year, my whole sophomore year when we were deciding to get married, like, I tortured myself about this. Like, is this the right path? You know, because of that religious upbringing, you know, I had to sort of turn to like other religious beliefs, like, you know, pray to God and say, is this what you want for me? Like, is this going to work out in the future? And ultimately, you know, with both of that sort of religious inspiration, but also just looking at the big picture, talking to other women who were doctors um, and seeing that they could be, both a mom and a physician and do a good job at both. (laughs) I think that was really influential. And just seeing other women who were role models, who had a career and also had a family, that was really influential. So those all helped me to make the decision for myself that, you know, even in spite of these religious teachings I had been brought up with, I had to make my decision for myself. And ultimately, I chose to become a doctor and I have never looked back. Like, I'm so glad I made that decision. How old were you when you got married? Yeah, I was just like two weeks shy of turning 20. So I was technically 19. Yes, you were young. <laughs> <laughs> very, very young. Yeah. If I had a daughter and she wanted to get married at 19, I would be like, no way. <laughs> it's just, I mean, 19, you're still a teenager. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. But, um, you know, when I, when it happened and when I told my parents, they weren't that happy about it because they were afraid that I was going to drop out of college or something. And they did want me to finish college. I turned to my mom and I was like, "Um, you were 19 when you got married. So you can't say anything. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. But at the same time, you know, she had had a very different life trajectory. She started having kids right away. And I think she was afraid that I would jump right into having kids. And then how was I going to finish college and have kids at the same time? But our life trajectories were very different.
0: Well, along those lines, I think another common obstacle for, for women or for girls is that just the domestic roles that are assigned to girls. So. I can recall serving that a girl or a mom is supposed to serve their children and their spouse and they should always come first. And I think this is hard for many. I know I grew up with this ingrained in my mind. However, with time, I realized that I have to come first so I can be a better mother and wife to my family. And I don't mean that in a selfish way. Thinking back, if I prepare myself financially through getting an education, I will be able to provide more in the long run for them. And also my children now get to do things that I only dreamed of as a child. And then if I take care of myself mentally, I become a happier person and become a happier wife and mother. If I exercise, which means taking time away from my family, I will be healthier so that I can live longer and take care of my husband and children longer. So if you really look at that statement or if anybody ever says that to you, Putting yourself first is actually driven by the motivation of serving your family better and longer. Another common thing that girls get told is forget about going to college or medical school. If you're already a mother, you can't neglect your children or your husband. And this one was shared by a a cousin of mine that, you know, she, she ended up having children or her first child when she was 15 years old. And she wanted to go back to college and get an education. And this is what her husband actually told her. So she kind of did not pursue that. And, and I'm here to tell you, I had several friends who were mothers and married while, while I was in medical school and residency. While their roles did shift a little, they in no way neglected their family when they were present. Although in many cultures, the role of the mother is supposed to be the main caretaker of the child or children and do all the cleaning, cooking, you guys, times have changed. Our parents or family members may not understand this, but it works. And as a matter of fact, I have friends and and family members um, in which the mom is the doctor and the primary breadwinner and the father is a stay-at-home dad, so... These assigned roles are really shifting and changing, and don't let your family pressure you to make it their way. Any thoughts, Dr. Marina?
1: I definitely see, you know, the the pressure for like women to do more of the housework and the child raising, and men to just, you know, be out working, making money to support the family. Um, And I think, you know, those very strict gender roles—they're bad for not just women; they're bad for men too, because some men. I feel a ton of pressure to have a job, work a lot of hours, work overtime maybe, or have jobs that they don't really enjoy, but they make a lot of money doing. I've seen men struggle with that, you know. So it's not just a disservice to women, but also to men to have these very strict gender roles. I think, luckily, like you mentioned, the world is changing, and we're starting to think outside the traditional box in terms mm-hmm. of gender roles. And I think that's, you know, that's a good thing for both men and women. You know, you mentioned the friends we have who's like the woman is a doctor and the guy's a nurse. You know, I love that, you know, the role reversal there. I have also a sister-in-law who's going through school. She's getting her graduate degree. And my brother, he also works, but his work is flexible. And so he's more of a stay-at-home parent Mm -hmm. during the day. So he's helping to raise my nephew and he's doing a great job. Thinking back, like I look at my own parents, there was definitely the like, you know, Mexican culture of like the man does this and the woman does that. And like, you know, my dad would never iron his own shirts early on in their marriage. My dad (laughs) would never wash the dishes. My dad would never like, you know, if he was at the table and there wasn't a fork, it was like, where's my fork (laughs) you know, or where's my knife? Like he wouldn't get up off the table and like get it by himself. Now, luckily, he's changed a lot. (laughs) And that's because when my mom went back to work, like he had to learn how to do some of that stuff. Now he's the one who does the dishes. He does the laundry. Like, it's amazing the shift, not just, you know, across generations, but like even within one person, they can change with time. But yeah, luckily, I think it's a good thing that we're starting to stray away from those very strict gender roles. Like a woman can earn a living just as well as a man can and in some situations in fact men prefer to be the stay-at-home parent. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. I think as long as you both as a couple are getting the job done and doing what needs to be done, then there's, you know, there are a million ways to to do that. There's no one right way to do that. Yeah. And like you mentioned, I know a lot of doctors who are moms. It is totally doable. Just like, you know, we never look at men and we say, oh, how can you be a lawyer and a dad, you know, or how can you be a doctor and a dad? We never say that to men. So why should we say that about women?
0: Yeah, I think establishing what a value of being a good mom and a good dad is, is changing. That's an evolving change because Uh just, I often think the same thing. It's why doesn't ever, anyone ever mention, oh, if the father is the doctor and working Eight or ten hours a day. Why? Why is he not a bad father? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, those assigned roles—they're—they're—they're quickly evolving, and the value of being a good mother and a good wife is not defined by how much work you do around the house.
1: Definitely. And you know what? If you're a doctor, you can afford to hire a housekeeper to help. (laughs) You know, and so it's less work that you have to do, and you get to spend more of that time actually, you know, playing with your kids, enjoying your family, your husband. Yes, amen to that.
0: Well, I hope that after hearing our podcast episode today, you're able to relate to some cultural or family stressors that can be overcome. Dr. Marina and I wanted to share these expectations that often drive us to make life decisions that we sometimes may regret later in life. We are here as survivors of getting through these cultural, social, financial, and familial expectations. You are not alone in this journey. As we diversify medicine more, our families and communities will see more diverse doctors and then normalize this process. I wanted to remind everyone, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Please comment, get involved, get engaged. We love dialoguing with all of you guys, talking to you guys. Get connected with us. We also now started posting on TikTok, so check us out. We're learning how to use it, so be patient with us. And for those of you who are 18 years or older, please consider donating to our podcast so we can keep it going. There are a lot of ideas that Dr. Marina and I have that we would like to propose to our listeners, but we will need support if possible. So if you can donate, you can go to www.futureminoritydoctor.com. Peace and love, y'all. Bye.